Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The Bowery Boys episode 405, The Mona Lisa, comes to New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And Greg, following the fun that we just had, you know, chasing Edward Hopper all over New York City, mm-hmm. we decided to cap off this month of New York art history with a return visit to America's largest museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, back in the year 2020, remember that year? <laughs> Way back then. Episode 341, we actually explored the history of the Met on its 150th anniversary. The museum was incorporated by the state of New York in 1870, opened its first exhibitions in 1872, and then finally moved to its new home in Central Park in the year 1880. And from that moment, the museum has only expanded in size and scope, today containing hundreds of thousands of valuable works of art. And 60 years ago this month, in February of 1963, the Met made room for one more painting, perhaps the world's most famous painting of them all, the enigmatic Mona Lisa, painted by Leonardo da Vinci in about 1503. And since 1804, she's called the Louvre Home in Paris. And honestly, it's really kind of hard to believe today that the Louvre would ever loan out (laughs) its most famous work of art. Yeah, it's not as easy as some people would have you think. Wait. That's impossible, Miles. Mm -hmm. Forgive my incredulity, but surely, uh, no, the the Mona Lisa, that's property of the state. There's no way. Blame it on the Pando Blanc. Louvre's closed. France needed money. And so I bought myself a little short-term loan. You know, it turns out the transport and the security was most of the cost. Check this out. That is a clip from the 2022 film Glass Onion, a knives out mystery. Not real, folks. That's fantasy. In in real life, in, in 1963, it was, however, thanks to the considerable charms and determination of First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy that the Mona Lisa left Paris and went on a sort of winter tour of the United States, first at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., and then on to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So in the first part of our show today, we'll be telling that story. 
And um, a little spoiler here. The Mona Lisa was almost severely damaged while she was here in New York. But this whole story, of course, got us thinking about the challenges of guarding such treasures at the Met every single day. Later in the show, we'll be joined by author and Bowery Boys tour guide Patrick Bringley, a former guard at the Metropolitan Museum, who will discuss with us his new book, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum and Me. But first, let's go back in time to February 7th, 1963. It's a cold, crisp morning, and you've been standing for several hours in a long line which winds down the steps of the museum and then down Fifth Avenue. Everyone in line, you're all here, all of you, here to spend just a few moments looking into the eyes of the world's most transfixing work of art. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with a mystic smile. Is it only cause you're lonely they have blamed you? For that Mona Lisa strangeness in your smile. On February 8th, 1963, Newsday reported, quote, After 459 years as an art masterpiece, Mona Lisa went on display in New York yesterday and was quickly transformed into a status symbol. Within hours, those who had been among the first to see it were sidling up to friends, smiling with a secret smile, and asking, have you seen the Mona Lisa yet? And the article goes on to describe how 28,000 people had visited Mona at the Met on her very first day on display, including a wide range of New Yorkers from, you know, all ages and all walks of life, who, as you mentioned, lined up outside a line that stretched blocks down Fifth Avenue. What makes this whole scene even more strange is that the Mona Lisa doesn't seem like a painting that would ever have gone on a tour in the first place. Right. I mean, the Mona Lisa is probably the most famous painting in the world and very old at the time, 459 years old, and also very fragile. Da Vinci had painted it on a piece of poplar wood, not on canvas. So, no, Mona Lisa is a rather unlikely candidate for an American multi-city tour. But you mentioned just a moment ago that it was due to the charms and persistence of the first lady at the time, Jacqueline Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So let's pull back for a second, because Jackie was a New Yorker. Yes, she was. Jacqueline Bouvier was born in 1929 into a wealthy New York family, Later, she attended Vassar, and she spent her junior year abroad studying in France, including at the Sorbonne in Paris, and she would then graduate with a degree in French literature. And we'll jump forward then through her early career in journalism. Uh, She landed a job at the Washington Times-Herald, and then she fell in love with and, and married Senator John F. Kennedy in 1953, who then, of course, ran for president and won in 1960. And during that campaign, by the way, Jackie was sometimes criticized for her fashion choices, her French fashion choices. Yes, she really didn't hide the fact that she appreciated 
French clothing, right? Uh, nor that she was drawn to European art and that she spoke other languages. And she brought to the White House a deep appreciation for art and for history, working, in fact, to restore the White House and, and to endow it with a first-rate collection of art. And Jackie here would be seen as sort of a, a special ingredient, right, or a secret of success to the whole JFK administration. Yes, and, and in fact, you know, for example, right away, very early on, when she and the president visited Paris in 1961, just months after he had been sworn in, things were a little rocky between French President de Gaulle and JFK. But Jackie managed to win over the French administration and the French people completely, or shall I say complètement, uh, because, <laughs> because she spoke French fluently and, and she loved culture and, and fashion, all things that the French love. And one of the most important people that she charmed on this particular trip and central to this story today was France's Minister of Culture, André Malraux. A famous author and art critic, and yes, now in 1961, culture minister under Charles de Gaulle. The following year then, in 1962, Jackie decided to throw a special formal dinner and reception in Washington, D.C., for Minister Malraux. According to author Margaret Leslie Davis in her book Mona Lisa in Camelot, how Jacqueline Kennedy and da Vinci's masterpiece charmed and captivated a nation. On May 11, 1962, Malraux visited Washington, D.C. and was joined by the First Lady for a carefully orchestrated private tour of the National Gallery of Art. And during this tour, Jackie mentioned... You should lend us some of your artworks. I would love to see the Mona Lisa again and show her to Americans. And Malraux reportedly replied, I'll see what I can do. And this reported exchange was quickly picked up by the international press. Sure. But this wasn't easy. Maybe he was just being polite. What was the deal here? Well, it was no accident because Malraux repeated the statement later that night. At a press conference, he was asked by a reporter for the Washington Post the same question, and Malraux answered, uh, Perhaps a loan could be arranged. France feels that these masterpieces belong to mankind, and that she has no copyright on them. But to be more specific here, the idea was to send Mona Lisa just to Washington, D.C. Yes, Jackie's idea was to exhibit the painting which the French call La Jaconde, at the National Gallery, which was still a relatively new cultural institution. Um, it had only opened in 1941. And its director, John Walker, was actually a, a personal friend of Jackie's and had known her for years. He, he had been a kind of artistic mentor to her and, and kind of guiding her appreciation for art. And I think that she saw a visit by the Mona Lisa as a way to help Americans appreciate art and even to get more everyday Americans, if you will, inside the National Gallery. Art could be for all Americans, not just for the cultural elite. Well, it would seem that the museum director here, John Walker, would be pretty much into this idea. Oh, but he wasn't. In fact, mm. as the idea matured and developed and was repeated by authorities, art and museum professionals around the world 
really howled in protest at the thought of sending the Mona Lisa, one of the best known works of art in the world, anywhere. It just was impossible. And Walker Walker was at the top of, of the howling. I mean, he just <laughs> repeatedly asked Jackie to please change her mind. Nobody, least of all Walker, wanted to bear the responsibility for it being injured in any way. I mean, can you, Greg, can you imagine being held responsible for somehow damaging the Mona Lisa? Well, it had already been through a lot. It had been Mm -hmm. damaged during both world wars when it had been hidden away for safekeeping. And then there was, of course, the time in 1911 when an Italian man named Vincenzo Perugia managed to steal the painting from the Louvre and race it off to Italy. And that unbelievable story and a story of how the Mona Lisa became so famous is covered in detail by our colleague Carl Raymond, a.k.a. The Gilded Gentleman, on his podcast. That's episode 19. But if it was so risky to send her away, then why would French officials eventually agree to the idea? So this was in the thick of the Cold War. And as I mentioned, you know, tensions had developed between President de Gaulle and President Kennedy. Tensions that were over, among other things, France's decision to develop its own nuclear arsenal. Okay, Washington didn't want France to do this. But France didn't just want to always rely on Washington to defend it. And so there was this ongoing rift that was political and it was diplomatic. And into this situation then strolls the Francophile First Lady of the United States with this seemingly outrageous request to borrow the Mona Lisa. So I can't really say for certain why France agreed, but Davis in her book certainly speculates that sending Mona Lisa on an American tour helped build and strengthen the U.S.-French relationship at a time when it was delicate and even, you know, fraying. But this was not a popular idea among museum curators and certainly not even with the French public. Oh, the public was outraged. Um, I read reports of Mona Lisa riots in in the streets of Paris. And Louvre employees were so irate that they placed seemingly impossible conditions on lending the painting including demanding that the temperature and humidity inside the galleries in the U.S. would need to match that of the Louvre when the painting was packed up. According to them, Mona must not experience any change in air quality and temperature or humidity between the Louvre and where she was to be displayed in the U.S. And if they did, if they screwed that up, if it was too hot or too cold or too humid, there would be an official on hand to quickly pack her up and send her back to France. I can kind of see that point. It's Mm -hmm. almost like we were going to take the Statue of Liberty, which Mm -hmm. was a gift from the French. The uh, the other French gift. The other (laughs) French lady. Yes. (laughs) We're just going to send her back to France for a couple years. Justifiable anger. So when did they then decide to also exhibit her in New York? Well, the New York detail was added pretty late in the game by the French authorities. They requested that Mona Lisa also be displayed in New York at the Met, which at the very same time happened to be installing a new air conditioning system throughout the museum. So the French authorities said that if the Met finished the AC system in time, they could then display the Mona Lisa for a month 
after her time in DC. We are talking some high stakes HVAC drama. <laughs> Just for context, by the way, we're talking the winter months. Yes, but you do know how museums in New York during the winter with thousands of bodies packed into them can get kind of moist. That's <laughs> sad, but true. So how did they get the painting to the United States? Did they buckle her up and fly her over? Oh, that would be too easy. Oh, no, no, no. She took the luxury liner SS France. Uh, she had her own stateroom. <laughs> the, the painting was escorted in the dark of night by a police motorcade 141 miles from Paris to the port city of Le Havre, where she boarded the ship. The New York Times reported the next day, December 15th, 1962, that, quote, the reception at the pier could hardly have been more impressive. As the rear door of the truck was opened, photographers made such a rush that they broke through the police lines. And then it goes on to describe how it, it passed through customs and the whole crowd cheered. And then it was, quote, carried aboard the France by four husky longshoremen. <laughs> Even if they had dropped their precious cargo into the water, it is said that its special crate would have kept the Mona Lisa dry and undamaged. And while they were en route, the French embassy formally announced that following the painting's display in Washington, she would continue on to New York to be displayed from February 7th until March 4th. The AC system had been installed to their satisfaction. And so on December 19th, less than a week before Christmas, the SS France arrived in New York Harbor, carrying more than a thousand passengers, and of course, the world's most famous painting, a painting that would immediately be boarded onto an armored truck and escorted by police through several states to the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., We'll get to Mona's grand unveiling and her trip to New York City right after this. Mona Lisa. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.
This episode is brought to you by the New York Historical Society and their fascinating podcast, For the Ages. Host David M. Rubenstein interviews the nation's foremost historians on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. In the book, And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle, celebrated historian and writer John Meacham discusses a president who governed a divided country and has much to teach us about this time of polarization and political crisis. The power of Lincoln's story illustrates the ways and means of politics in a democracy, the roots and durability of racism, and the capacity of conscience to shape events. And explore the story of the bald eagle with Pulitzer Prize-winning environmental historian Jack E. Davis, who delves into the story of America's most famous bird in a special two-part episode. The first show focuses on the natural habitat of the American eagle, its hunting and mating habits, and migratory patterns. And part two discusses how the bald eagle came to be tied to American identity and government, the importance of bald eagles in Native American cultures, and how modern conservation efforts arose despite the hunting of bald eagles in the early American Republic. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. On January 6th, 1963, the Mona Lisa made her formal American debut in Washington, D.C. One of Washington's most distinguished throngs is at the National Gallery of Art to welcome a distinguished visitor. President and Mrs. Kennedy with French cultural minister André Mulroe and his wife pay homage to the first public appearance of Mona Lisa, the Leonardo da Vinci painting that has captured the fancy of generations for 400 years. The president expresses the gratification of the nation. Mr. Minister, we in the United States are grateful for this loan from the leading artistic power in the world, France. In view of the recent meeting at Nassau, I must note further that this painting has been kept under careful French control and that France has even sent along its own commander-in-chief, Monsieur Malraux. And I want to make it clear that grateful as we are for this painting, we will continue to press ahead with the effort to develop an independent artistic force and power of our own. That's Kennedy adding a little nuclear weapon subtext into his joke there. Needless to say, not your everyday art tribute. So if this was the VIP event, when did everybody else get to see it? That would be three days later, on January 9th, with the painting flanked by guards from the United States Marine Corps. The crowds, needless to say, were overwhelming. There was simply nothing that had ever been displayed at the National Gallery to even remotely match this. By the time the final day of exhibition came around, on February 3rd, over a half million people had stood in line in D.C. to see the painting. But as we will reveal in a minute, she was just getting started. Because Lady Lisa's coming to New York and starts spreading the news. Um, so how did Mona get up to New York? By a Secret Service entourage, which drove the painting 
from DC. In fact, she even took the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> I don't know why it's so <laughs> funny. Stopped at that McDonald's, yeah. And if you think that's startling, mm-hmm. many reporters took note of the fact that this entourage to New York passed another art entourage on the turnpike going the other way, carrying Whistler's mother by the artist James Whistler to be displayed at Atlanta's High Museum of Art and, wouldn't you know, another loan from the Louvre. Another iconic and beloved masterpiece, which was now suddenly on tour. Art had become diplomacy, especially after World War II. Today, billions of dollars of art are loaned out. And they were back then. To give another example of New York City in the 1960s, lots of art would be loaned to Robert Moses and the World's Fair of 1964. In fact, one of the fair's most popular exhibitions was Michelangelo's Pietà, a loan from the Vatican that was blessed by the Pope himself. Yes. Needless to say, getting the Mona Lisa here seemed like a cinch compared to the Pietà. (laughs) Do you know they actually sent the Pietà over in a nuclear submarine? That's what they thought. Wow. (laughs) That was the easiest way to get the Pietà to Queens. But anyhow, it sounds like Mona arrived in New York like the world's biggest celebrity. And it was high stress for those who had to ensure the safety of both the painting and the hundreds of thousands of people who wanted to see it. And now that responsibility was handed to the Metropolitan Museum's director, James Rorimer. Now, as a curator, Rorimer spearheaded the opening of the cloisters in Upper Manhattan in 1939 and was also among the Americans appointed to rescue art purloined by the Germans during World War II, a key member of the group known as the Monuments Men. So, sounds like the Met is in good hands. But could the museum handle an exhibition like this? Had there, had there been, you know, huge traveling exhibitions before? There had been traveling temporary exhibitions, but on a much smaller scale. But that was decades before. By the 1960s here, the whole canvas of art in the world had fundamentally changed, and Americans were much more attuned to what was going on in the art world. New York, of course, by this time, was the center of the art world. And no piece of art, save for something immovable, like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, was as famous as this painting. And even if you maybe didn't really care to see it, whatever, it's just a small painting. I've seen prints. The attention and the buzz and the press surrounding this, it was just simply too overwhelming to ignore. And it was the Mona Lisa combined, you know, with the glamour yeah. of the Kennedys at the same time. I mean, incredible. So so where in the Met did they decide to exhibit the painting? The Mona Lisa was hung in the medieval sculpture room, Ah. one of the largest rooms at the Met and very centrally located, as Mm -hmm. many who have gone to the Met know. Listeners might even know this room for the massive gilded choir grill from the year 1763, and it's also where the museum puts up its Christmas tree Mm -hmm. every year. Now, Rorimer had the benefit of going second in terms of exhibition, and so he could learn 
from any mistakes that the National Gallery may have made during its exhibition. One key change, very key, and one that on the surface does not sound like a good idea, was that at the National Gallery, they gave a person about five seconds to look at the painting before you had to leave. Five seconds? You mean you were kind of like herded by like cattle? Yeah, keep it lively. You had to keep going, right? Here at the Met, even though it would create these massive, large lines, or perhaps because it would create these lines, if you want to look at it that way, Rorimer wanted people to have an experience with the painting. He wanted people to see that famous smile. So Thursday, February 7th arrives, and the doors open at the Met. What was the buildup like? Well, the the fact that there was such a scene and such buzz is pretty remarkable because there was actually a massive newspaper strike in New York City, and one which lasted the duration of Mona Lisa's visit here. Ah, might have been a very big problem if not for the fact that in 1963, of course, we had radio and even television, mm-hmm. as well as substitute papers that were kind of filling in some of the need here. And of course, all the national papers were covering it. That then all sets the scene for opening day at the Met on February 7th. And we referenced this at the start of the show. Thousands waited outside for hours, waiting until 10 a.m. when the museum finally opened. The first one in line was a Brooklyn taxicab driver named Joseph Lasky, who arrived at 4.30 in the morning just to see this painting. Now, Tom, this is extraordinary, but a few years ago, I wrote an article about this event for our website and mentioned that Mr. Lasky was first in line. Now, he passed away in the year 2000, but his son, Bart, left a message on our website saying, quote, he was a wonderful guy and loved all of the arts. And there were a few other comments as well from people who were in line that very day on February 7th, 1963. One reader named Sonia writes, quote, I was there too on that freezing February morning. I went with my school and I remember standing in front of that portrait completely in awe. I was only eight years old, and my passion for the arts was born that very day. And then a gentleman named Jeff left a comment, quote, I was one of the lucky ones who was also captivated by her. The following year, on a second class trip, we saw Michelangelo's Pietà in the Vatican Pavilion at the New York World's Fair. As a result of these fortunate events, I spent my long life enjoying countless art, history, and other museums in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. I think we take for granted today um, the, the impact that these kinds of exhibitions had on people. Seeing these kinds of things in person was, was really powerful. A painting like the Mona Lisa evokes more than just an artistic, critical response. Newsday, one of the only local papers in operation during the strike reported on a few other reactions. Quote, One sheet girl spent the better part of her lunch hour looking at the painting. An art student with a beard sketched the painting on a pad. But most looked at it for about 10 seconds, then moved on. And their reactions are typified by one woman who turned to her companion and said, Quote, Okay, we've seen the Mona Lisa. Now let's eat. (laughs) 
<laughs> but overall, the Mona Lisa was a sensation. In that first week alone, a quarter of a million people came to see the painting. And by the end of its run on March 4th, over one million viewers had filed through the doors of the Met to see her, shattering the Met's attendance record. New Yorkers were caught up in, as they called it, Mona mania. We're, we're kind of used to, you know, quote, art hot art shows in, mm-hmm. at the Met and other museums, you know, highly buzzed about exhibitions that you, you talk about with your friends. and You're like, oh, we all have to go, right? Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really the Met's experience up until this moment. This changed the way that the museum operated for the whole month. Opening hours were extended and extra people were brought in for security and maintenance. They literally had to figure out how to accommodate the throngs of of people who were attending the, the exhibition. And then, Tom, then there was the sprinkler incident. Uh-oh, I... I don't like the sound of this. (laughs) Well, here's the story. The great Thomas Hoving, a former director at the Met, tells of a serious incident which drenched the painting with water for hours. Quote, I came to work a little before nine, dashed to the Western European arts, only to find the head of the conservation studio and his assistant, along with the officials from the Louvre, rushing around with towels. Sometime during the night, one of the fire sprinklers in the ceiling broke its glass ampule and the masterpiece of painting had been gently rained upon. (sighs) The Mona Lisa, according to the Louvre official, however, was okay. He told me that the thick glass covering had acted like an effective impermeable, a handy dandy raincoat. The rainstorm was never mentioned to the outside world, unquote. I mean, Greg, I, I get nervous when I put a, like a glass or a cup of coffee on a library book. <laughs> or I mean, yes. so it was just gently rained upon for some <laughs> unknown number of hours. Okay. But when all was said and done, more than a million people came through the Met to visit the Mona Lisa. That final tally was 1,077,521 people. Three days later, the painting was placed in its traveling case, removed to an unmarked van, and accompanied by Secret Service agents to Pier 86, where she was lifted onto the awaiting ocean liner, the SS United States, and then placed in a luxury cabin. Maybe similar to the ones she had over from France. She only travels in staterooms. Well, by March 12th, she was back in France and back home in the Louvre. And except for one other loan to Tokyo and to Moscow in 1974, the Mona Lisa would never again leave the Louvre. Exactly one year from the debut of the Mona Lisa at the Met on February 7th, 1964, Four, New Yorkers would get caught up in another mania because this is when the Beatles would make their first appearance in the city. A, a mania that we captured in our show called The Beatles Take New York. That's episode 346. And less than nine months after the painting left the shores of the United States, on November 22nd, 
1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated as he rode in a motorcade through Dealey Plaza in downtown Dallas, Texas. And as we all sadly know too well, the First Lady was by his side. Even in her later years, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis would continue to live in New York City and would often be associated with the Metropolitan Museum. In fact, she lived right up the street from it at Fifth Avenue and 85th Street until her death in 1994. But looking back on that other lady, um, that other exhibition, has the Mona Lisa remained the Met's most attended show? Well, it's up there. It ranks as number three, but there have been two other more popular exhibitions in the Mets history. Uh, In second place is the Treasures of Tutankhamun. King Tut. Which were displayed from the winter of 1978 to the early spring of 1979, which drew over 1.3 million visitors. And the most visited exhibition is the 2018 show... Heavenly Bodies, Fashion, and the Catholic Imagination, which focused on the Catholic fashion influences. And that drew over 1.6 million visitors. Wow. So many people. And it does make you wonder, what would it have been like to have worked security during these Mm -hmm. very, very busy moments in Met history? Well, we will get some insights into guarding the Met when we return with our interview with Patrick Bringley, right after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen Gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. It's now our pleasure to welcome to the show Patrick Bringley, a former New Yorker staffer who left the magazine for a 10-year career as a guard at the Metropolitan Museum. And he writes about life inside the Met in his new book, All the Beauty in the World, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me. Patrick, 
Welcome to the show. It is wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So excited to to keep this Met conversation going on our show today, because in the book, you're telling a, a few different stories at the same time. There's the, there's the insider story of what it's like working at the Met, uh, but then there's also your personal story, which includes moments of deep sadness and also joy. And then there's also a sort of cultural and historical journey through some of the world's greatest works of art. So there's a lot in here. And I, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Let's start with your story. Why did you choose to become a security guard at the country's most famous art museum? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, right out of college, I got a job um, at The New Yorker, not as a writer, but in their events office. And, you know, I'm showing up to a skyscraper at 42nd and Street and Broadway and thinking I'm sort of at the center of the world. And I think that's rather dangerous for a 21-year-old to think. Um, <laughs> I had not yet lived life and I hadn't been thinking any original thoughts and I hadn't written a word of consequence. But, you know, in some ways it was a good job. But while I was there, um, my brother got ill and he was very ill. He had what, what's called a soft tissue sarcoma. It turned out not to be the sort of thing that you're going to beat. And all of a sudden, I was spending less time in midtown Manhattan and more time in his apartment in Queens and um, in hospital rooms, sort of quiet hospital rooms at Beth Israel Hospital. And it was clear that something very momentous was going on in those little rooms that was such of a different atmosphere than the office life of rushing around and completing projects and worrying about office politics and nonsense. And it reminded me in some ways of old master paintings. And when Tom died, I wanted to do something that just was nourishing, that was straightforward and honest, where I could just have my head up and be thinking my thoughts. And I, I sort of chose as a venue the single most beautiful place that I could think of to sort of remain in, in that state of mind. Yeah. And your brother passed away in 2008? Yeah, that's right. Did you then think that going into a career at the Met, being surrounded by the art, was that possibly a way to, to heal? Did you think that there was a healing power to the art or that it would give you a new perspective on life? Yeah, I think all those things. I mean, I think whenever you're in a place that feels sacred, that feels silent, that feels still, that feels beautiful, there's a consoling aspect to that, mm -hmm. you know, even if you can't put into words quite why. And I wanted to remain in that state rather than just kind of rush back and put my head on some trifles that are a part of the so-called real world where we're in the office. It felt like there's something very kind of essential and plain and mysterious to continue to sort of commune with at the museum. So once you made this decision, you know, this is a pretty major career shift. What was the process? Like, how did you become a guard. You write about in the book very eloquently about the application process and the training. Can you tell us a little bit about like what you went through? I had known someone who was a guard before, and I had also, of course, just always noticed the guards, and I thought that maybe that would be a good thing to do. They used to just post an ad in the Times when they had availability. They hire sort of batches of 15, 18, 20 um, at a time because there are more than 500 guards, so there's a good amount wow. of turnover. And I just waited for the dates, and I showed up to the open house, and you're just by the Temple of Dender. You're in the, the Grace Rainey Rogers Auditorium there. 
and they tell you the hours and half the room leaves because when they were hiring, they were hiring for 12 hours Friday, 12 hours Saturday, eight hours Sunday, eight hours Tuesday. Well, um, that yeah. would be your entire weekend. Yes, it would be your entire weekend. And I was uh-huh. 25 years old, so that's that's something to lose. But I stuck with it, and uh, you interview and you train in the classroom, and then you also you know shadow a guard who sort of shows you the ropes. And I did it. I jumped in. So is it anything like the movie night at the museum with Ben Stiller? <laughs> it's, exact, it's exactly like it. Although rather than the art turning to life, what actually happens that the, is that the guards at night turn into works of art. What a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> I love how you, you take us behind the ropes, behind the scenes at the museum and talk about the different levels underground in the museum, the different amenities that are available to you, the tailor, you know, the, what is it, the hose allowance uh, yes. that you had to buy, buy yep. your socks. You get $80 uh, in your in your paycheck every year, the hose allowance. <laughs> your line, I didn't know where to look on my paycheck for the hose allowance. I, thought, right. I thought that was pretty good. But can you break then down how, how the museum is divided into sections and posts and how you report to the dispatch office? How do, how do you know where you're going when you arrive. Sure. So, you know, the museum sits on 12 acres of Central Park. And just as it's big above ground, it's equally big underground. Mm. And that's where most of the work gets done by sort of the 2,000 people who work in the Met. It's where you're going to find the conservation studios and there's a wood shop and a plexiglass shop and a printer and there's a working armory. It's like um, a little city. It's a little city. <laughs> I mean, almost everything that's built for the exhibitions and things is built by union guys and the shops right there at the Met. And I would come in in the morning and I would walk through those sort of underground tunnels and you head over to the dispatch office and they would find my name on a tile and they'd put my name on a big board and they'd say, you know, Bringley Section H, which meant I was going to Egypt or Section K1, which meant Greece and Rome or B, the old masters. They, they move you around a good deal. So pretty soon, you know, all the sort of nooks and crannies. So once you are assigned to one of these sections, then there are posts, right? So you are rotating. You don't stand in the exact same spot for the entire shift. That's right. Yes. You you rotate through three posts. You're on a team with four guards, but one of you is on break. Three of you are on post. And you move from your C post to your B post to your A post, and then you're on to your break. So each of your posts, it depends. But you know, sometimes if you're in smaller painting galleries or something, they'll cover three galleries or so. If you're in you know, the Temple of Dender, there'll just be one post or even multiple posts in one room. And then you go on your break and you kick up your feet and maybe you take a little nap um, in the locker room or whatever. And then you, you start the journey over again. To what degree are you allowed to interact with the public or do you have to remain silent and keep watchful? No, you can. The day is very long. So <laughs> in, over the course of that day, sometimes you're just going to be leaning in a doorway Oftentimes you are pacing and you're moving from one doorway to another to make sure you have the bead on on the galleries under your watch. And you talk to people for sure. I mean, it depends on you. You don't have to as a guard. It Actually, a lot of it depends on your own sort of demeanor. I would notice if if I was in my own head and I was thinking my own thoughts and I was just quiet and reflective, then most people don't talk to you because they kind of pick up that vibe. Mm-hmm. But if you're standing in the middle of a gallery and you're sort of looking around expectantly, then people walk up to you and they ask you all sorts of things or they even sort of take you into their confidence. One thing that I notice is that 
most people sort of think that the guards are going to be on their side, whatever it is that they think. Oh. So if you're walking through contemporary art and the person thinks, this is nonsense, look at that, you know, my nephew could paint that, uh, they'll come up to you and sort of, you know, uh, <laughs> poke you in the sides and say, come on, pal, you know. Really? Yeah, really? exactly. But then, then the, another person will come up to you in that same gallery and be like, is this not the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? You're sort of the person that's on hand for people, especially mm -hmm. people who have showed up to the museum alone and they kind of feel that they got to say something to somebody right, and you're course. the somebody. Yeah, <laughs> to witness with them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of that relationship, between visitors and guards, you actually give an interesting profile of the other guards that you worked with, and it's a surprisingly diverse group of people. You you describe people from Albania, Guyana, and Russia. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I worked at The New Yorker, everyone went to your same sort of school. A lot of people followed a similar kind of path to be, get into the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. But if you work as a museum guard, nobody sets out in life to become a museum guard. So as a result, it, people follow every path imaginable to get into the job. And as you mentioned, a lot of guards are immigrants. Mm -hmm. So particularly those guards often have lived unbelievable lives in all sorts of fields. They've been cops. They've been kindergarten teachers. They've been cabbies. They've been lawyers. There was somebody who was a commercial airline pilot. And they end up in the job because it's union and it's steady and it's something that seems relaxing maybe or seems beautiful maybe or Maybe they're drawn to the art. Maybe they're artists themselves. There's scores of guards mm -hmm. who are artists, who are working artists, and they're drawn to it for that reason. Now, I want to turn back to Mona for a second. Uh, the, the idea of the blockbuster show, and you worked, you write about working the 2010 show uh, Picasso at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which featured hundreds of works by Picasso and is definitely considered a blockbuster show. What was it like keeping, I guess, keeping the art safe, keeping the people safe? I mean, when you have this number of people, this mass of humanity that's lining up down Fifth Avenue to come in and you're in the gallery, you see them coming. It's cool. I mean, we're clicking at 1,400 people an hour. Some guards would never want to work that. They'd be asked, you know, keep me out of the show. We always call those the show. Keep me out of the show. But I liked working the show because on the one hand, you've got the fact that you're inside Picasso's mind for day after day mm -hmm. after day. Mm -hmm. And it's very different to, you know, be in an exhibition for a couple of hours versus a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And you sort of can see it from all these different angles. But then also, it's just fun being in, in a room where people are very expectant and very excited. People, you know, walk into the next gallery and they say, the blue period, this is the blue period, you know, to one another. Um, they're so into it. Yeah, they're very, very into it. Because, you know, the Met owns, those were all things that the Met owns. They own more than 250 Picassos, I think. But if you went to the Modern Wing, you know, you'd see six or something. Yeah. Uh -huh. So this was everything brought up out of the basement and it did some gaps here and there, a fair job of depicting this incredibly long life and you artistic life as well. And people got to go through that and sort of feel like a narrative was being told, which is a great thing that happens in an exhibition. But it's also harrowing because the modern and contemporary wing at the time did not believe in floor stanchions. Uh, they since have changed their oh. ways. But floor stanchions, just to pull back here, you're getting kind of technical. <laughs> yes. The, the, you mean the little, the, little, the, little, the little line that's keeping people back? Yes, the sort of shin-high bungee stanchions. Mm-hmm. 
A thing to know about the Met is that every different department is its own kind of fiefdom and they have their own rules. Oh. And the modern wing did not use stanchions. So as a guard, it was our job to sort of maintain that narrow, empty channel between, if you'll allow me, the cubist and the ordinary squares. Um, <laughs> at, I wrote that. You've used that joke before. I, you know, in fact, I've, I had that in the book and my editor went oh crossed it right out. You should be writing puns for us. I know. That's good. Yes, yes. So, you know, we're having to maintain that channel because people are constantly trying to edge up to get a better view around. And I write in the book that one of the most harrowing things I I saw as a guard, if not the most, was somebody was trying to get uh, a view and then they decided to to move around the crowd and they took the inside track through that narrow channel (laughs) and they just threw their shoulder into this picture, Picasso's woman in white, threw their shoulder into the frame. And the way that pictures are usually hung in the Met is they're on these copper wires that are anchored near the ceiling. So it swung on those copper wires. It may be exaggerated in my mind, but it was like three full (laughs) oscillations, you know? And everyone in the room has their hands up like they're about to be under arrest. And it swings and it comes to rest and everything's fine. But it did sort of jostle something loose in me almost and, and kind of made me more interested than I once was in the sort of under-the-surface chaos and not-so-pristine aspects of what it takes to bring 7 million people through this museum every year. Look, we've seen screwball comedies. We've seen bringing up baby when the whole dinosaur skeleton falls down. These things can happen. They can, yes, especially if Cary Grant's around. Oh, yes. So how do you handle those situations that involve visitors who clearly don't know anything about museums or artwork or the whole experience. People, maybe it's their first visit to the Met, maybe it's their first visit to a big city, into Mm -hmm. a big art museum, and they don't have the lay of the land. And oftentimes they sort of look to you as the guard to sort of give them the lay of the land. And that's sort of your responsibility to help guide them through. And then there are oftentimes people who just can't help themselves. They just see especially a statue of bronze or, you know, some cold, hard stone, and they just slap their hand against it kind of without thinking. Part of kind of appreciating a sculpture, you almost have to caress the thing with your eyes. So it's sort of natural that you would want to caress it with your hands as well. Yeah, I had a young man, he he tried to climb a Venus statue in the Roman gallery. And I stopped him and he was very polite. He just didn't know. He's probably 13 years old or something. And he looked at her and she has a missing head and missing arms. And then he looked all around and he said, so all this broken stuff, it broke in here? (laughs) Oh, no. I was like, no, no, it didn't break in here, but it still wouldn't be good to touch it. (laughs) It's not a playground. Well, actually, you do write about the different types of of visitors at the museum, right? You kind of have a shorthand for the different types. Can you walk us through the different types that you observed? Yeah, there's all sorts of types. I mean, there are people who love art. And they are going there because they want to read the label and they want to sort of walk through at a snail's pace. And it's their thing. They read in The New Yorker some great review of some new exhibition. But there are a lot of people who love maybe it as an institution. And they're there. They treat it like a day at the park. Mm -hmm. And they've got sort of favorite places that they go. They're bringing a girl through, whatever the case may be. And then there are other people who don't know what they're looking at at all, like I said. They just know in New York City this is something you're supposed to do and they ask you for the dinosaurs and, you know, for the Mona Lisa. I could have told them in 1963 Mm -hmm. where it was. Just a little late. 
Yeah, and there are people who just like a quiet place. There are a few regulars who come all the darn time, and you know they talk to the guards, and、mm-hmm. that's one of the things that they do.、Uh, there's a fellow who comes every Saturday and Sunday, and he says hello to you exactly once, and as he sort of walks through the galleries, making sure he says hello to every single guard,、um, then he gives you a Christmas card. It's all different people. I mean, if you're getting thirty thousand people on a busy, the busiest days, and you know if you're a, They're a one in a thousand type. Then you're going to get thirty of them in a day. <laughs> But for the most part, people do remain respectful to the guards. I mean, you did write about a rather cringy, hostile, hostile encounter that you had in the, I believe, Reitzman galleries, the period French room,、um, that just made my blood pressure climb a little bit. And、um, I hope that you don't have that kind of altercation very often. Not too often, but sometimes problems happen at closing time. And this guy was clearly somebody. He clearly had money. Maybe he was a little bit famous in whatever it was that he did. And he just thought it was funny that I was trying to usher him out of a gallery because he just thought this was sort of a hilarious situation. So he said to me, "You know, five minutes, five minutes." And you're not going to give him five minutes. You're going to give him, you know, thirty seconds maybe.、Um, and he's with his small child. And then finally, we got him out only by a, a more veteran guard, kind of walking in and saying, "Closed, closed, closed," <laughs> in this sort of very bored but aggressive manner that that he perfected. And the guy turns to his kid as he's walking out, and he says, "Small people, small power. It's life." And there's a certain kind of person who does want to remind you that hey, you're just a security guard, and you can't really boss me around. And the reality is, we're not going to tackle him. We're not going to put our hands on him. So if somebody wants to be a jerk like that, they can assert their power against us.、Um, but no, it doesn't happen often. But also, that person's wrong. I mean, the job is incredibly profound in the sense that, you know, most people listening to this will go to work. And they'll spend most of their time at work in the present. You know, Tom and I, we have the opportunity of spending our jobs a, a little bit in the past. You know, three hundred, four hundred years in the past. But you, as a museum guard, you get to go through these rooms and spend your time surrounded by the objects from a thousands, thousands of years. You must have had some experiences where it just caught you off, caught caught you off guard, where. You, it was so profound that it kind of took your breath away, and perhaps you even forgot what you were supposed to be doing because you were surrounded by things all the time. Like, did you ever have those those kind of exceptional transcendent moments? Oh, absolutely! All the time you're you're looking at some object, and then you check the label, and maybe it's a hand axe in the early Egyptian. Wing, and you see that they they've have it labeled as you know between one hundred thousand BC and three hundred thousand BC. <laughs> It's somewhere in that three hundred thousand year span that these hand this hand axe might have been created, and it does sort of. Give this broad perspective. I mean, one thing that's wonderful about a museum, wonderful about reading books, learning about New York City history, whatever, is it makes you realize that this single tiny little conversation that's happening on Twitter right now, or whatever controversy is in the news,、mm-hmm. that is this very narrow thing compared to this whole big world that we all live in, and all of these questions that are still alive, these mysteries about the essentials of creation and of the human drama, and what is going. Going on, what is this life that we live a brief time on Earth, and that people have been thinking about this 
for generations and generations and thinking in all different ways and all sorts of different frequencies. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a museum or you study history, you realize that your little frequency, that, that's just one little thing. And there's much, much more out there. You know, you spend much of the book talking about that leading the reader through your odyssey, your artistic and personal exploration. Today, what does the Met mean to you? It will continue to be a place that I return to and return to because I think that the thing about art is that it's usually not about anything particularly sophisticated or doesn't need to be. It oftentimes is just reminding you of the obvious, that this world is beautiful, that this world is big, this world is very full, that the human experience is full of beauty, but also sadness and pain. And I think that it's a struggle for any of us to keep our minds on those sorts of fundamental things because your mind always wants to flit away to some pressing business or seemingly pressing business. And I think I will continue to return to the museum to have those experiences, to have that sort of rekindled in me. And then also I've got a bunch of buddies standing around on mm -hmm. post. So it's been fun when I'm leading the tours. I'm always bumping into people I know. And and I hope that I'll be meeting readers and I'll be meeting met members who have read my book. And I, I'd very much like to keep it as a place that I, I really treasure and have a relationship with. Well, this book's changed how I We'll see the Met going forward. I'm going to go tomorrow and I will just pay a little bit more attention to like how everything is guarded and protected and those little stanchions. I'll note I'll I'll be seeing them everywhere. Well the guy's Patrick, best friend. <laughs> thank you very much for joining us on the Bowery Boys podcast today. Patrick's book is called All the Beauty in the World, The Metropolitan Museum of Art and Me, published by Simon and Schuster. More on Patrick can be found on his website, Patrick Bringley, that's with an EY. Dot com, including links to his insider tours of the Met, which are also offered through BoweryBoysWalks.com. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you so much, and thanks to your listeners. It's been wonderful. We want to thank Patrick Bringley for joining us on the show today and sharing his stories of what it's like to work at the Metropolitan Museum. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for some images of that special day in 1963 when the Mona Lisa came to town. A big thank you to those who support us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. Did you know that patrons uh, who support the show at the Gilded Age level, uh, that's $10 and up, get Bowery Boys episodes ad-free. And you can even get them earlier as well, depending on the show. And of course, all of our supporters receive Bowery Boys Patreon-only shows, including Side Streets, our new show uh, where we talk about things that are tangentially related to the latest episode. On this week's show, we interview Tommy Silk. Many of you know him on TikTok and Instagram as Landmarks of NY. It's a great conversation about landmarks in the city and about his journey documenting them all on social media. So get in on the fun at patreon.com slash boweryboys and join new patrons Jill A. from Manhattan, John O. from Connecticut, Nate K. from Utah, and additional patrons like Wesley M., David S., Nitty A., Enid T., Caleb J., and Mary M. Thank you all 
for supporting the Barry Boys on Patreon. And be sure to join us and our wonderful tour guides in the streets of New York over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Greg, we have a couple tours that kind of relate to our topics today. Patrick does, of course, a um, insider's tour of the Metropolitan Museum, so you can actually meet our guests today on that tour. We've got tours of Fifth Avenue, the Gilded Age Mansions of Fifth Avenue, and a new tour of the Secrets of Grand Central Station, which was saved from destruction, thanks in part to um, activists like Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. So head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com and see the many ways that you can walk through history. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.